KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, November 17th. How racially discriminatory deeds shaped San Diego homeownership. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. AAA says the number of people traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday this year will approach pre-pandemic levels. Most people will drive, and it won't be cheap. The Auto Club says the average price of a gallon of gas around San Diego County is about $4.64. But AAA spokesperson Jeff Spring says there's some relief on the horizon. But once the refineries get through these issues that they've had for the last couple of weeks because of the rains or just because of Um, unplanned maintenance, I think we'll see prices either plateau or, or start coming down. San Diego County supervisors will get a first look today at how the county will try to become carbon neutral by 2045. The draft framework will identify how to roll back greenhouse gas emissions without crushing the local economy. The draft framework still needs public input, but the plan could be finalized early next year. A new poll by the Public Policy Institute of California shows strong pessimism among Californians about their financial state. 63% of adults polled say they believe today's children will be worse off in the future. Mark Baldessari is the head of the PPIC. Those who are making more than $80,000 a year, they're in pretty good shape. And that's why the state's finances are in pretty good shape. That's why the state's economy looks in pretty good shape. But it doesn't reflect how everybody in California is feeling about the economy today. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Racially restrictive covenants once prohibited Black, Latino, Asian, and Jewish families from living in certain neighborhoods across the county. KPBS Race and Equity reporter Christina Kim tells us how those shaped the region's housing in the first part of a special three-part series. Ever since 2014, when Michael Dew bought his home in San Diego's El Cerrito neighborhood, he's been a fixture at his block's parties and happy hours. But every now and then, something happens that reminds him that as a black man, he didn't always belong. Like the time an older neighbor mistook him as a gardener. So I'm talking, and I was going to refill a drink. And an older woman, I wish I knew who she was, uh, you know, just kind of caught me off guard. And she says, oh, are you one of the gardeners? And I was like, why would a gardener be at a happy hour? Years later, when reading over the 1950 deed of his ranch-style home, Dew figured out why his older neighbor might have said such a thing. The deed included a racially restrictive covenant. That neither said lots nor any portion thereof shall ever be lived upon or occupied by any person other than of the Caucasian race, 
provided, however, that if persons not of the Caucasian race be kept therein by a Caucasian strictly in the capacity of servants or employees actually engaged in the services of each occupant or in the care of said premises for said occupant, gardener. For years, hired help was all he could have been in his home. Racially restrictive covenants were legal documents attached to deeds, subdivisions, and entire developments. They took off at the turn of the 20th century. Even as early as 1927, they were on, you know, three quarters of the new homes in America and about half of all homes. So they spread very quickly and became a dominant way of limiting who could live where. That's Gene Slater, an affordable housing specialist and author of Freedom to Discriminate. He says real estate brokers and developers created and enforced racially restrictive housing covenants across the nation. They created a whole system, including all the other brokers in the city and the homeowners association, neighborhood associations, public officials who worked together to make certain a city or a neighborhood would remain all white. San Diego was at the forefront of this national trend. A sample of San Diego City deeds from 1910 to 1950 found that every single one had a racial restriction. Advertisements for San Diego properties from the early 20th century all allude to these racial restrictions. One from 1910 for lots in Inspiration Heights, which is now part of Mission Hills, says the area has the necessary restrictions and is planned and protected for particular people. In other words, white and affluent. Black Asian, Latino, and Jewish San Diegans were all but locked out of the city's signature neighborhoods, like La Jolla, North Park, and Mission Valley, and instead purposely segregated into Southeast neighborhoods. In 1948, the Supreme Court struck down the legality of racially restrictive covenants. But as we see with Dew's home, they continued into the 50s, as did the patterns of racial segregation that they, in concert with redlining, steering, and zoning, created. Patterns that continue to shape San Diego today. It's not hard to see, says Denise Mathis, president of the California Association of Real Estate Brokers. Whether you're African-American, Hispanic, or white, we still use the Interstate 8 as the dividing mark. Okay, so south of the 8, you expect one thing, and north of the 8, you expect something else. San Diego is more segregated today than it was 30 years ago, according to a recent UC Berkeley study. And much of the segregation is still marked by Interstate 8, with more wealthy, whiter communities in the North. As a Black woman from San Diego, Mathis's own grandfather was impacted by housing discrimination that continued long after racially restrictive covenants became illegal. I always remember him telling us that he looked at a house right outside of Mission Valley on top of the hill, and he was told he could not purchase there. So what would that home in Mission Valley be worth that I could have inherited compared to the home that they steered him to buy in Oak Park. Where would my wealth be? Today, homeownership plays a bigger role in creating wealth for Black families than for white families. But gaps continue to persist. Only 30% of Black San Diegans own their homes, compared to 61% of white people in San Diego, according to a 2018 Redfin study. There needs to be more evolution of thought as to the impacts of some of the rules and regulations of the past that kind of determine where your socioeconomic position is today. 
It's why Michael Dew wants more people to know about racially restrictive covenants like the one in his home. The home his grandfathers, both veterans, couldn't have bought. The overt housing discrimination they faced may have been illegal for decades, but we're still a long way from understanding, let alone undoing, the generational harm these practices have caused. And that was KPBS Race and Equity reporter Christina Kim. Tomorrow, we'll continue the series with a closer look at how one community in North County is debating over how to address and remember its racially restrictive past. Fifteen California families are suing the State Department of Education over alleged discrimination of medically fragile students with special needs. The students are unable to return to in-person learning that could expose them to COVID-19. The case could impact distance learning for those students with disabilities statewide. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has more. 16-year-old Ethan Russell is a high school sophomore, an avid video game player, a Special Olympics champion, and a musician. He's also living with the extremely rare floating harbor syndrome, a diagnosis that causes him to be medically fragile. Ethan's had 23 surgeries, five heart surgeries, a heart attack. He has cerebral palsy. Um, He's... He's got a lot going on. Heather Russell is Ethan's mother and strongest advocate. His father, Sean, and younger sister, Talia, are his devoted supporters, too. The Russells are among 15 California families suing the State Department of Education for discrimination by denying Ethan and the other children at-home learning with their full special education support services. Every parent wants their child to be healthy and happy and have an education. And, and so he also deserves what every other child is receiving right now. In July, the state legislature passed AB 130, which became the new law to prioritize in-person learning for all students, including those with special needs. That left students who are medically fragile without a viable distance learning option and support. Ethan has been stuck at home with no support, like he used to have his freshman year through Zoom classes. Ethan is a student here at Patrick Henry High School, but he's never actually attended any in-person classes. San Diego Unified School District is not part of the lawsuit, and it is the district's policy to never comment on pending legal action. The families aren't suing school districts, they're suing the state education department because AB 130 is a state law. The department released a statement that says, in part, the CDE is continuing to work overtime on this issue and to ensure that all students receive the education they deserve. As we have stated before, vulnerable students have been acutely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic and working to mitigate those impacts has been a top concern of California's education community since the virus was first detected in our state. It discriminates on the basis of disability. So what we would like is equal access to safe virtual instruction. Robert Borelli represents the families in this case who were granted a temporary restraining order requiring immediate virtual instruction. That's in process for Ethan and the others. A judge will review the case December 2nd, and the decision could impact children who are medically fragile with special needs across California. That could add the title of hero to this young man's list of accomplishments. And that was KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez.
San Diego County is facing a wrongful death claim from the family of a young man who died in a group home in Escondido. KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado tells us there's also threats of lawsuits if that home is not shut down. My son had just turned 18 and he had a long life ahead of him. Big, beautiful heart. He loved music. Typical 18-year-old, athletic. He could make you laugh and... 0.3 seconds. <laughs> Amanda Shane smiled as she remembered her son, Isaiah Shane. He died in May of a drug overdose in a short-term group home in Escondido called Circle of Friends, where he was supposed to be getting treatment. Isaiah was taken there after being placed in foster care because of addiction and behavioral issues. But once my son went into the county's custody, he was not receiving those services. Why not? I don't understand why. Now, the family has filed a $1 million claim against San Diego County for wrongful death, saying they failed to provide basic care and a safe, supervised environment. Shane Harris, the president of the People's Association of Justice Advocates, says the home has a history of complaints that include sexual abuse. You're telling me now, with all of the complaints and the police chief and all of this involvement from law enforcement and the DA even took a case and charged someone who was a former employee for having inappropriate relations with a child? You're telling me that it's that hard for the county to muster up some courage and actually close the group home down. Harris says that in addition to the monetary claim, the county, state, and board of the home must do the right thing and shut it down, or they will face lawsuits of their own. We are not going to stop until we get the end of this group home closed. They need to close it down now. It is demonstrated that they don't have the leadership to take care of these kids. Isaiah's mom says she wants her son to be remembered, not by the way he died, but for creating change that protects kids like him. That's going to be a beautiful legacy to be remembered by when these changes have taken place and all the lawmakers do what they're supposed to. That's how my son will be remembered. We reached out to Circle of Friends and the county. We have not heard back from the home and the county says they cannot comment on pending litigation. And that was KPBS's Kitty Alvarado. Earlier in the podcast, we heard how racially discriminatory covenants have restricted who can live where in San Diego. And that also had an impact on parks and recreation. Recreation centers in the northern neighborhoods of San Diego are significantly better off than those in the city's southern neighborhoods. KPBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Eyre looks at what those disparities mean for people living in different parts of the city. Henry Basin has coached free tennis lessons at Kalina Del Sol Recreation Center in City Heights since the 2000s. He's noticed a decline in the upkeep of the space. I do more maintenance around here over the years than actually the area manager sometimes. He comes and requests me if there's a net that needs to be put up and they don't have the staff to do it. I put the nets up. Uh, I clean the course after every class. A new city audit finds recreation centers in San Diego's northern neighborhoods get more funding, host more activities, and attract more participants than rec centers in the southern part of the city. It says the city's Parks and Recreation Department contributes to that inequity problem by poorly handling low-income fee waivers and by not publishing promotional materials often enough 
in languages other than English. City Auditor Andy Hanau says the largest disparities are coming from contracted programs, which program participants pay for out of pocket. He says those programs are almost exclusively in the northern part of the city and suggests to expand them south. He also says the city should consider extending fee waivers and reductions. That survey also found most of the 27 city parks in poor condition are in low-income or middle-income areas, not wealthy parts of the city. Baston says the differences in rec centers are very visible for his tennis students when they travel to play in tournaments, whether it's the nearby noise or maintenance of the courts. I explained to them that pay attention to where you are, where you come from, right? Your facility. And then when you go to a facility outside of your facility, compare the, um, the situation, how they look compared to how your facility looks. The Performance Audit of Equity and Recreation Programming Report will be presented at the City of San Diego's Audit Committee on Wednesday morning. And that was KPBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer. Coming up, Broadway San Diego returned to live performances last night with the touring company of Hairspray. What gives a girl power and punch? Is it charm? Is it boys? No, it's Hairspray. We'll have more on that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Audiences enjoyed a live performance last night with the return of Broadway San Diego and their touring production of Hairspray. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando looks back at Hairspray's roots as a 1988 indie hit from John Waters, and she explores its continued success on stage with Jack O'Brien. The fact that films made by the Sultan of Sleaze, the Prince of Puke, and the King of Schlock can now be found under family entertainment is an irony that must delight John Waters. <laughs> Waters shocked audiences in 1972 with Pink Flamingos, an all-out satiric assault on the middle-class values he saw as oppressive and hypocritical. The no-budget indie film, set in his hometown of Baltimore, starred Divine, a 300-pound drag queen, as Babs, who boasted being the filthiest person alive. Filth are my politics, filth is my life! The film lobbed a bomb in the cultural war of the early 70s. What made Waters unique was the joyous delight he took in his trashy obscenity. He loved to shock audiences, but by embracing Hollywood trappings, such as a stable of stars, straightforward narrative plots, and a focus on just being entertaining, he eventually found mainstream success with Hairspray in 1988. Baltimore, 1962. You're looking good, a bit the heyday of hairdos and hair don'ts. The film marked a major crossover success for Waters, and it eventually inspired a musical play in 2002. What gives a girl Power and punch, is it charm, is it boys, now it's hairspray. Jack O'Brien, former artistic director of the Old Globe Theater, is helming the touring musical. 
He notes that staging a play about race relations, set back in the 1960s, did give him pause considering the current state of social unrest. I think it was with a certain amount of trepidation that we all looked at this piece in today's market with hypersensitivity in terms of role playing and what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say. And we found basically that it was just fine, that it is, in fact, a very accurate historical representation of what was going on in 1962, from which we can then see how we got here. It's a time capsule that looks at how a segregated rock and roll show leads to a group of teenagers pushing for change. You see the innocence of these kids who do not quite understand why they shouldn't be allowed to dance together. And you see this little girl who has a dream be fueled by the imagination and talent of the black kids and given enough of her own spark of divine fire to be able to make her her dream come true. It couldn't be more contemporary. But we've preserved basically John Waters' formula which is, can't we all just get along? Rebelling against authority and the status quo is at the heart of all John Waters' films. He also challenged traditional images of beauty, which is why he cast the late Divine as Edna Turnblad in Hairspray and gave us a character who didn't feel she or her daughter had to conform to any conventional notions of how they should look. As O'Brien says, Divine left big shoes and a big bra to fill, and he found the right performer in Andrew Levitt, one of the stars of RuPaul's Drag Race. And I think that Andrew, as Nina West, although he's not playing Nina West in Hairspray, I I beg you to understand, this is not a special guest appearance by Nina West. One of the interesting things in working with Andrew on this that Jerry and I and Matt Lenz and all of us have tried to explain is it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. That reality of being a parent An insecure parent does not have to do necessarily with with gender. It has to do with the heart. You can enjoy big hearts and big hair at the Civic Theater as the touring company of Hairspray takes the stage for Broadway San Diego's first live show in 20 months. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. Spray runs through November 21st. For more information, you can go to broadwaysd.com. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Shake it
KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.